welcome to 10 by 9 where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. And this is the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm Paul Doran and 10 years ago in 2011, Podrigo Tuma and I started 10 by 9 in the Black Box in Belfast. And we love it. All our events are now on Zoom, so you can join in wherever you are in the world. You can find all our upcoming events and all the things you need to know about us and some things you don't at our website, 10by9.com. Now, there are three stories in this podcast, all told via Zoom. So some of the recording quality is better than others, but all three are cracking stories. And here's our first storyteller. Meet Darius Whelan from Limerick, who was at the 10 by 9 mic for the first time. He told this story on February the 11th when we teamed up with Roe Valley Arts Centre and the theme was In Sickness and In Health. My mother is worried that my father may be having an affair. It's a theme she comes back to quite often as we care for her during lockdown. It's April 2020 in Limerick. My mother, Breda, is 84 and she has Parkinson's disease. She says, I think dad's having an affair, you know. He has another woman. She always calls my father dad. This can be said at breakfast or randomly at any stage while she's sitting reading the Irish Times, for example. We've grown somewhat accustomed to the lockdown and we're pleased to know it will all be worthwhile because there'll be no need for any more lockdowns by September. Yes, that's what we thought at the time. The house is very quiet, the loudest sound being the whizzing of the stairlift up and down the stairs. We've very few visitors and she's not even able to take a stroll up to the end of the road as she's cocooning. The house is filled with the paraphernalia of sickness, walking sticks, rollators, incontinence pads, and tablets and blister packs. I've gone from taking care of my children as they grew up to now taking care of my parents as they grow old. I've moved 60 miles from Cork to Limerick. We have a live-in carer which allows me to do my day job from nine to five on a laptop in my bedroom. Rita struggles with the carer's name, variously calling her Shannon and Sharon. Her name is actually Shanna. She's 28 and she's Canadian. Rita is small and quite thin. She wears clothes which are of good quality and stylish with a fondness for a colorful scarf which complements her outfit well. She likes to read the paper, listen to the radio, and then watch TV from about 3 to 9 p.m. She functions reasonably well in spite of the Parkinson's and is reasonably alert. She really loves listening to music. For decades, she sang as a soprano in a choir called the Voices of Limerick and in the local church choir. She raised five children, and enjoyed her job as a primary school teacher for 30 years before retiring in 1988. There was tragedy in her life too, especially when one of her sons, my brother, died through drowning at the age of 22. Since that date in 1986, she has never visited the stretch of river where he drowned. Before the lockdown, a big weekly outing was the excursion to mass a mile away in Milford Hospice and Nursing Home. The Mass was a surreal experience, with the congregation made up mainly of nursing home residents in wheelchairs 
and nuns in their 70s and 80s. When communion was distributed to those in wheelchairs, it was accompanied by a small plastic glass of water to ensure that nobody choked. The venue suited us better than the local church because it was accessible for Brida with her rollator, which she called her buggy. She knows that there's a new virus in the country, but doesn't fully understand it. Sometimes all the talk of infection rates, PCR tests and ICUs on the news gets too much for her. And she says, we've had enough of that now, asking us to change channels. The pandemic is an added burden for everybody, reducing what can be done, closing shops and requiring social distancing. It adds to the stress for her of growing old and having Parkinson's disease. Time moves slowly and she and we get bored. She looks at her watch a lot and studies the clocks throughout the house. She really looks forward to Maura and Dahi, the Today Show on RTE TV at three o'clock. She loves certain media personalities such as Claire Byrne, Mary Kennedy, Brendan Grace, and Brendan O'Carroll. This love even extends to Dick and Angel from Escape to the Chateau, an odd choice perhaps. She likes Frank Patterson singing, but thinks he opens his mouth too wide when singing. She advises us that if he's on telly, he has a lovely voice, but don't be looking at him. She's not a big fan of modernity, meaning anything since about 1960. She was shocked when visiting Dublin in 1985 to see a man wearing a yellow shirt on Grafton Street. She also disapproves of modern food, such as pasta and salads which don't have sliced ham in them. She sips a half glass of wine every now and then, but only if I have one with her, as she doesn't want Shanna to think she's fond of the drink. Occasionally, we're reminded that she has a progressive disease. One day, she can't get up out of bed and her legs are rigid. On a few other occasions, she falls out of the bed in the middle of the night, even though there's a small rail at the side of the bed. One time, about a year ago, she fell in the bathroom in the middle of the night. She couldn't get up and she called for my father, who was asleep but had headphones on and didn't hear her. She couldn't reach the alarm on her wrist because it was caught under her. Eventually, my father somehow worked out what was happening. She had locked herself in, so he needed to use an axe to break down the door. As the axe was thundering into the door and she lay there shivering on the cold floor, she was terrified it would hit her or that the door would fall in on top of her. The door was replaced, but there are still axe marks on the door jamb. Breda's theory about her husband's affair is linked with the fact that his big hobby is playing poker at friends' houses, usually until three in the morning. In her opinion, this is giving him a good opportunity to have an affair with another woman he must have met. She finds that he's absent more and more and not around when she needs him. We're almost afraid to tell her that dad has been dead for six months. Thank you so much, Darius. Such a brilliant ending to a wonderful story.
You can see Darius telling that story on our YouTube channel, where you can watch almost all the stories from our Zoom events in bite-sized chunks going right back to April. Yep, that's how long we've been doing this. And just to torment you a little, here's Ben Ritchie with our second story. It was told in May 2020 when the theme was holidays. Let me explain. The dictionary defines a holiday as an extended period of leisure and recreation, especially one spent away from home or in travelling. No, means nothing to me either. It was 1992 and we had decided to take the kids to Disneyland Paris, which had opened earlier that year. However, about a week before the departure date, my wife had received a date for an interview on the Monday when we should have been in France. After much soul searching and consultations with the travel agent, we decided that I should go ahead as planned, that my wife would attend the interview, then fly to Paris with the kids, where I would meet them on Monday afternoon. So early that Saturday morning, after little or no sleep, I kissed my wife au revoir and set off on our trusty Renault 9, which we had bought a few months before. Just how trusty you'll find out later on. The car was loaded with enough supplies to set up a mini campsite of our own. There was everything from tea bags to laxatives stashed away. I should point out that I wasn't a confident driver. Indeed, I would break into a sweat coming up to the carried-off roundabout, thinking of the dual carriageway ahead. I, for one, wouldn't need any laxatives. Twenty minutes into the journey on the far side of Castlewell, I realised that I'd forgotten the cool boxes with the vacuum-packed meat. With a U-turn worthy of any fast and furious car chase, I returned and picked up the boxes, reassuring my wife again that all would be well. Sure, what could go wrong? The journey to Cork was uneventful, as was the sailing to Roscoff. After disembarking, there were ample signs showing the route to Paris, which I would have to go around in order to reach the campsite. Maybe this journey wasn't going to be as bad as I feared. This complacency was shattered when they arrived at the outskirts of Paris. I went through some tolls and was met by a battalion of signs for Paris, different parts of Paris. Paris Nord, Paris Sud, Paris Est, Paris Ouest. How many Parises were there? My trusty guidebooks say they had to take the sign for Paris East. Unfortunately for me, the road signs were in French, where the French words for East and West are so similar to each other, I didn't know one from the other. Merd, I thought. Which way? This was all happening on the move, and I was running out of time and motorway in which to make a decision. Feel the force, Ben, said a cool, calm voice in my head. Let the force guide you. I did, and I turned right. Fortunately for me, the force turned out to be right too. Now I was about to face what I had dreaded for months, the Periphonique, the Parisian Ring Road, a place that made grown men cry, where faith is lost, nerves shattered, and souls destroyed. With a courage born from desperation, I yelled to myself, No fear, Alonzi! and hurtled into what was really a Formula One Grand Prix held on a daily basis. Soon I was in the middle of a maelstrom of speeding vehicles where brake lights were viewed as a sign of weakness. It was like a sardine being in the middle of swarming hungry sharks. 
If I didn't draw attention to myself, I just might survive. I knew that I had to take the ninth slip road off the periphery. So getting into the spirit of things, I started to count. Un, deux, trois. I passed the eighth turn off and realized that I needed to be in the right-hand lane to exit. There was space somewhere on the right, but the car behind me was only a few feet away from my back bumper. Gritting my teeth, perspiring like a squeezed sponge, and with an image of Dick dastardly in my mind, I cut into that space to the accompaniment of assorted car horns objecting to my maneuver. Looking in the rear view mirror, I saw a driver making obscene signs and shouting who knows what at me. Still high in adrenaline, I simply shrugged my shoulders and waved back. Then I was there, the ninth exit from hell. I soared up that slipway, like a drowning man breaking to the surface and gulping that first breath of life-saving air. Like a phoenix rising from the ashes, I had survived. Nothing could stop me now. I still had a couple of hours driving, but I was a veteran now. So I took it all in my stride. Apart from the time, I had to turn left, and I wondered why the car coming out of the road I was entering was on the wrong side of the road. As the other driver's surprised expression turned to one of utmost fear, I realized it was I who was on the wrong side of the road. An expertly executed swerve to the hedge avoided a collision, and a timely piece of acceleration meant that I left the scene as quickly as possible. Shortly afterwards, I reached the campsite, signed in, got to the tent, and unloaded our gear. I found a public phone box and rang home. Hi, yeah, I'm fine. No, no problems. It was all well signposted. It's just like driving at home. Yeah, going to the cafe when we finish. I'll not starve. Okay, I'll see you tomorrow. Tell the kids I was asking for them. Good luck tomorrow. Love you too. And so I walked to my tent with my Fanta lemon and two dried out croissants. The next morning was spent making the tent look presentable for the arrival of my family. I had passed a sign for the airport on my way from Paris the day before, so I knew where I was going. And I set off for it in high spirits sometime in the middle of the afternoon. Now, someone once told me that all our judgments and expectations are based on the experiences that we have already had. So imagine my surprise when I turned to the Charles de Gaulle Airport, expecting something like Belfast City Airport or the International Airport, only to be met with a scene that looked like something from another planet. Multiple towers and high-rise buildings as far as the eye could see all linked by a network of roads. And yes, all the signs were in French. Why is that? I was totally gobsmacked, completely lost. Marion and the kids would be arriving soon and expecting to meet me. What if I went the wrong way? How would we ever find each other? The mood of the whole holiday rested on my shoulders. I pulled into a lay-by, surveyed, the baffling scene before me, and said one of the most sincerest prayers I have ever said. Lord, show me the right way. Then patting the dashboard, I said to the car as much to myself, it's up to us now. Let's go.
It wasn't high, but I ended up in a multi-story car park, took a lift, and ended up on the arrivals lounge. I searched the screens for any sign of a flight from Belfast, and within minutes, to my great relief, Marion appeared, Kathy in one hand, Damien in the other. Relief, happiness, exhaustion. I felt all of these as we hugged and kissed among strangers. The rest of the holiday went mostly to plan, and it was one of the best holidays we, we ever had. And what of my trusty Renault 9? Well, it had carried us across France and home again without any trouble. Shortly after we returned home, I got a flat tire. And when I went to change the wheel, I discovered that the spare wheel didn't fit the car. Images of what would have happened if we had had a puncture in France flashed through my mind. But then I smiled. There had been no puncture in France. Mon ami, my trusty Renault 9, had seen to that. And, as we say in France, c'est la vie. Vive la France et merci beaucoup, Ben. As you know, 10 by 9 is always free, but we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. We're so thankful to everyone who has donated. If you don't like Patreon, you can give via PayPal. Just look us up using our email address, which is story at 10by9.com. That is story at 10by9.com. Equally, you can just sit back and support us by turning up, by listening and enjoying. And now here's our third story. Recently, we teamed up with LGBT Heritage Project NI and the organisation Working With Pride for stories on the theme Body, Mind, Spirit. I'll be running them out over the coming weeks, but here's a flavour. It was Natalie McGrady's first time at the 10x9 mic, and she told this amazing story, which deals with fertility issues. So my story is called The Trials and Tribulations of Trying to Conceive as an LGBT Woman. There's lots of teas in that title. My wife and I met on another tea, Tinder. I'd love to say we both swiped right, and the rest is history. But history has a lot of twists and turns and throws a lot of unexpected surprises at you. In May 2015, I sent a cautious hi to my now wife on the popular dating app Tinder. That short text quickly developed into me, the most unathletic person on earth, learning about her career as a gymnastics coach, her semi-successful football career and her love of traveling to America for skiing. Our first week of texting led to another three weeks of long essays and late night conversations while she visited friends in America. We were both just out of rough relationships, hoping to dip our toe gently back into the dating pool. Thanks to the help of some serious therapy, I'd just left an incredibly abusive relationship three months prior, and my wife had equally just left her relationship in a bad way two years before. Because of this, we were totally honest on our first date. We talked about how we wanted to just go with the flow and probably only see each other once or twice. We talked about our exes, how she'd never been with a girl before and how we didn't see a point in a relationship unless we intended to marry the person and have kids, how very old fashioned of us. Yet, despite an incredibly unlucky few years, complete with homophobic parents and serious health issues, we never could quite find a way to live without each other. And just like we talked about on our first date, in 2017, we started the process of researching how two women could have a baby. We went into this process as well researched as we could, but there wasn't much information out there. We didn't need medication. We didn't need IVF. We just needed the equivalent of a natural insemination while being on the right side of the law 
and ensuring that we would both be considered the legal parents of our child. The first place our research brought us to was an incredible website called Pride Angel. Yes, it was an American website, but it was a great starting point. It was from there that we found out the best way to secure both our names on the birth certificate was to get married. This would avoid a complicated legal battle with one of us having to adopt the other's child, as well as a possible legal battle with the sperm donor. So we started there. With equal marriage being illegal in Northern Ireland at the time, we planned a civil partnership in just six months. After that, we quickly found out that the free go of fertility treatment on NHS only applied if you'd tried naturally, i.e. straight sex, for two years, or if you had 12 rounds of fertility treatment through a registered clinic. We worked out that 12 rounds of fertility treatment would cost us roughly £20,000, which there was no way we could afford. So that was the NHS out of the question. So we then went to an open day for the only private fertility clinic in Northern Ireland, GCRM Belfast. The open day was filled with older heterosexual couples. So all the information was aimed at heterosexual couples looking for surgery intervention uh, to create a child. We found out through this open day that the closest they could do to unmedicated conception was IEI or intrauterine insemination. This procedure required a blood test to check that the LH hormone had risen enough to indicate egg release. You're then given a date to which they think you'll ovulate. On ovulation day, you turn up to the clinic, they put a tube up inside you to which uh, defrosted sperm del is delivered all the way from the EU and will be injected and then left to its own devices to find the egg. Two weeks later, you do a pregnancy test and if it's negative, you start the process all over again. The procedure itself only takes around 15 minutes, but it costs £2,000 a pop. The requirement of EU donor sperm meant we would have to pay for shipping, refrigeration and storage for literally the smallest vial of sperm on earth. And this all adds up, unfortunately. Even the sample pricing on the open day didn't account for the extra cost of donor sperm, which many gay couples probably going through the exact same process. After all this research, we thought we didn't have many other options. We didn't know anyone willing to donate to us at home or in the clinic, and we were scared by the legality of the whole process. We wanted to make sure 100% that we would have full legal parenthood over the child no matter what. So we saved up and went through the clinical process, feeling like we didn't really have many other options with so little guidance available online. It took us a full year to go through the process of just three IUI attempts. Each time the clinic insisted on £200 consultations, £200 scans and a lot of other hidden costs that meant we would have to save longer and harder in between each go. On the third time, we sat with a nurse who explained to my wife that she had unexplained infertility, which is basically another way of saying they can't find an answer as to why the process isn't working. She was recommended IVF, which would involve shelling out another £9,000 on top of the £8,000 we had already spent if we wanted to continue. We had a horrible experience with this clinic anyway. Aside from it feeling like a general conveyor belt, we also had doctors arguing with us down the phone about appointment dates they mixed up and a lot of other communication issues. So we were very eager to search for other options. Thanks to the miracle that is the internet, in February 2020, we found a new donor willing to donate to us for free. Without the additional financial stress of purchasing a limited amount of donor sperm, we were finally able to relax a little bit and decided to give the clinic one last go. Lo and behold, on the first try, my wife got pregnant with our baby boy, who we nicknamed Mango because that was one of the fruit size comparisons on our baby app. Baby is the size of a mango this week. We were so excited. After almost two years of trying and so many issues with the clinic, this felt like a miracle. 
We made to the 12 week scan and even though I wasn't allowed into the hospital with my partner due to the COVID restrictions at the time, my wife was assured that we had a healthy baby, perfectly sized with a strong heartbeat. She had a few slight cramps around week eight, but was told by the midwife that this was just growing pains and as long as she wasn't bleeding, this was fine. Fast forward four weeks later and my wife gets extremely strong cramps, so she went up, goes upstairs and gets ready for bed. While changing and talking to me, a drop of pink blood fell onto the floor. Our hearts sank as we knew what was coming. Our notorious bad luck streak had struck again. My wife, alone again due to COVID restrictions, walked into the hospital. She hadn't bled anymore and her cramps had gone away, so she wasn't a priority with the nurses that night. She watched several women with far worse bleeds walk in and walk out of the wards, pleased that their baby was fine. Then her turn came. The nurse immediately said, oh, there's baby's heartbeat, see? To which my wife said, no, not really, but if you can see, that's okay. Then the nurse left to get the doctor to double check. After poking and prodding for a good 20 minutes, the doctor explained he couldn't find a heartbeat and baby was only measuring around 13 weeks instead of 16. It was at this point my wife was allowed to ring me to tell me I could come into the hospital. I've never heard so much pain in her voice in my life and I never hope to hear that again. It didn't really hit me at the time. I just went through the motions feeling like it wasn't real. The next day we went back to the doctor to take what was essentially an abortion pill as baby had been dead inside her for three weeks and showed no real sign of wanting to come out. Within 24 hours, my wife's water fully broke and we drove back to the hospital to give birth to a tiny seven centimeter baby. The next morning we were asked to name him. We didn't have a name, so we called him the nickname of our bunk, Mango. The nurses were incredible to us, allowing us to stay in a private room in the hospital as long as we wanted, making sure we had enough to eat and even managing to make us laugh during the worst night of our lives. They gave us a little memory box with a yellow mango-coloured knitted blanket and two teddies. One for us and one for Mango from a wonderful charity called Sands. We then went home to grieve. On the 9th of December, the day which would have been Mango's due date, we decided to celebrate his life by converting our civil partnership to a marriage, turning what would have been a day of mourning into a happy day that it should have been. So yes, life really has brought us with some unexpected twists and turns, but we've learned a lot about ourselves and the very flawed fertility system. I really hope in the future that I can be a resource that I never had to couples trying for a baby. Thank you. Thank you so much, Natalie. You made a lot of fans that evening. Brilliant and sad. And that is pretty much it for this podcast. If you'd like to tell a story at 10 by 9 go along to the guidelines page on our website, 10 by 9com and get in touch. We are always, and I cannot stress this enough, always looking for storytellers. I'm going to ask a small favour. If you enjoyed this podcast, could you go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your fix at 10 by 9 Give us a rating and maybe even a short review. It helps get us noticed. Or just drop us a line to our email address, story at 10by9.com or all the usual social media channels. We love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out Podrick's new project, The Corimila Podcast. Get it at the usual places. This podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed and published by Paul Dorn. So, all my fault. I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye.